I made it very clear when people started and we were doing onboarding, I would just, you know, straight up say, this is a, a corporate network. You know, we're monitoring everything on it. We have access to everything. So just, you know, don't do anything on your computer that you wouldn't want me seeing. You know, don't go look up that hemorrhoid cream if you don't want to tell me you've got hemorrhoids. I'm not actively going onto your browser history and going through it. But, you know, if something happens and you had to leave the company on short notice and we had to, you know, get some files off your machine, I would, you know, go in there and I have to, you know, reassign your mailbox to uh, either your replacement or your supervisor when you leave. You know, often I would say that and people just be like, yeah, that's normal. But some people it's like, I'm, you know, looking at me like I'm reaching into their purse and taking something out of it. It's like, didn't you know? Haven't you had jobs before? Because they were doing that there too. Maybe they just didn't tell you. So it's like, yeah, here, when you're in that position, there's a lot of responsibility it needs to be taken seriously. But, you know, you can get access to everything on the network if you need it. And I think it's good to be upfront with people about that. It's for security and continuity of the business and things like this. And then people just say, yeah, that sounds reasonable. You're listening to What's That Noise? the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Here's your host, Tommy. It's so good to connect with you. What a year, what a year. The continued injustice, the pandemic, the catastrophe in Beirut last week. I'm barely scratching the surface. My heart goes out to everyone who is in Lebanon, or who has family and friends out there. I spoke to three friends who have family in Beirut, and thankfully, all of their loved ones are okay. I was particularly worried last week because when I lived in Bochum, Germany a couple of years ago, I met a really gifted young Lebanese scholar who was studying in the building that I worked in at the time. His name is Youssef. I knew that he was traveling back and forward from Bochum to Beirut quite a bit. So I reached out to him, and here's what he had to say. Hello, doctor. Um, yes, yes, I'm fine. And thank God everybody that, uh, that I know in Lebanon are, uh, are healthy and, and good. But it's, it's a really big problem. Like... Uh, we we can't we can't estimate the amount of damage that happened. Beirut Beirut uh, Beirut is looks like uh, looks like Chernobyl. That's is uh, that's 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 very 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 sad. What what's happening there? It's it's a really really sad situation. Like above above all the problems that they have, we have we have no port now and. Um, the hangars uh, of uh, of medicine and and wheat are completely destroyed. Yusuf is a really strong young man. He's someone who counts his blessings, and he lives a completely different reality than my own. My problems are privilege problems, and they're inconsequential to people around me. I am fortunate that my problems only require me to address them. One of my most personal struggles right now is finding relevance in my outlets. And the reason why is because it can often feel like a genuine waste of time. There are just so many huge problems in the world right now that require global cooperation to address and overcome them. 
And so many of these huge problems are just that much more challenging to address because of the noises surrounding them. Those noises are distracting, especially when they're deliberately misleading. You're gonna lose more people by putting a country into a massive recession. Or malicious. For whatever reason, the China virus, children handle it very well. But here's my reprieve. The late philosopher Michel Serre told us that there are many different kinds of noises. There are visual and acoustic, semantic and linguistic noises, and they deeply affect society and political life. But that also means that these noises can be separated. They can be slowly pushed away from one another to the sides so that we can isolate and study them independently. When I internalize noises, they activate my curiosity, but sometimes things can get a bit messy. As a researcher, I'm highly motivated by things that I don't understand. There are mysteries and uncertainties that I find to be really exciting because there are new opportunities for me to challenge myself to grow. I love puzzles. And yet, puzzles can be really exhausting. Because my mind will run circles until I find a way to solve the puzzle. And if I don't solve the puzzle, I really do find myself depleted and exhausted. The noise is in my head. It comes from me trying to solve that puzzle, and it starts with curiosity. The line between my curiosity and noise is mitigated only by how much I get excited or choose to withdraw from something that confuses me. So why am I bringing this up? I find refuge in 2020. I try to enjoy my outlets, like this podcast, based upon the premise of what it is that we do here together and what's that noise. There are different kinds of noise out there. Some of it is a matter of curiosity about the world and not just malingering self-righteousness. There are noises worth pursuing, ones that are byproducts of trying to solve puzzles that are really, really exciting. I don't actually think the puzzles have to be solved. I like to try and solve them, but the pursuit is indeed an opportunity for growth. I digress. I recently dug around in a hard drive that I had with me when I traveled to Germany a couple summers ago, and I found on it an interview that I've wanted to share for quite some time. It reflects a time in my life where I was genuinely confused and curious about how computer science savvy people truly thought about the subject matter that I study, privacy, cybersecurity, and ethics. I've always known that as a social scientist, as a critical social theorist, conceptualizing novel understandings of data protection, there's always going to be a different perspective out there that is vastly different than my own. There is the real world, the applied, the practical dimensions of the things that I study. And I really didn't have a lot of experience with those perspectives or those applied things until I started my postdoc at Queen's University a couple of years ago. When my wife and I were living in Bochum a couple of summers ago, we had the chance to visit some friends from back home. These friends of ours completely upped and moved their entire lives to Leipzig. Chrissy is a really gifted master of political science, and she's a very accomplished writer and evidently a gifted teacher of the languages. Her husband, Des, 
is like a computer science solution architect. Des, I don't know if I got that right. Please let me know and I can go back and correct this in the future. But Des, you're someone I really admire. You're not only a great human being with very rich and nuanced experiences in parts of the world that I've dedicated my life to studying, you do it from the inside out. And I try to do it from the outside in. Or at least I've been trying to shift that in the last couple of years. It's probably of no surprise then that Des and I love talking about the same things. To the chagrin of our wives. <laughs> Privacy, surveillance, data profiling, and so on. Des and I don't often agree. And I think that's what makes our chats so fun. And I was lucky enough to capture one of those chats when we visited Leipzig, and I'm going to share it with you now. Let's set the stage. Chrissy and Christina are out on the town. Des and I are sitting in the apartment having drinks, and we are talking about data security and data surveillance and data ethics. I find Des's opinions on these things to be really sobering. And at times, you're going to notice, very confusing. In our chat, you'll notice that my questions come from a place of genuine absence of knowledge. At times, I felt confident that I understood algorithms. In that particular moment, I thought I had a pretty firm grasp of what APIs are. In the role of, for example, artificial intelligence in corporate security practices. And yet, I found myself reflecting on this conversation for the rest of my summer and in the years that have passed because I'm still a bit confused. But that confusion has really fueled a lot of my curiosity in the last two years as a researcher. This is where I signal that noise, at least some noise, can be very productive and helpful. Or at least, in the words of my close friend Ben Muller, reinvigorating. I took a lot from this conversation, and I hope that you will too. If you are interested in differing perspectives on data matters, I think you're really going to enjoy this. And if you know someone exploring different academic or applied pathways into privacy and surveillance, please pass this along to them. I think there's a lot to take here, and the best way to get the ball rolling is to hear about Des and his pathway, because it really grounds the how and why of his outlook on the wonderfully complicated world of computer programming. I was actually born in Waterloo, uh, which is not something a lot of people can say because there's no hospital in Waterloo. It's in Kitchener. So people who are from Waterloo are born in Kitchener. And if you're not from the region, you don't know, but there's kind of a rivalry between the cities. There, Kitchener-Waterloo is, you know, the cities touch. There's no real border. You're just driving down King or Weber and, oh, you're in Kitchener now. And it looks the same. There's no break or anything. There's just a house here and a house here and a house here. And this one's in Waterloo and this one's in Kitchener. The buildings don't have a and different I, color. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And the water tastes a little bit different. It shall be well. But it used to be that Kitchener was the shitty side of town. I'm going to offend some people. <laughs> That's Waterloo okay. I do it was all the time. nice side of town. Uh, and so I took it, you know, big source of pride that I was actually from Waterloo. It was a home birth, so. <laughs> and you studied there too? Uh, yeah, I went to UW first for chemical engineering and then switched to Laurier, which is also in Waterloo. That was fun. That was a nice break. From chemical <laughs> from, engineering. Yeah, from the rigors of UW engineering to the, I don't know, what's the opposite of rigor? <laughs> Podcasting. Yeah. The ease of uh, computer science at Laurier. It was a real 
is what I needed because I was kind of going insane at UW. So I, I mean, I did it intentionally and expected it to be, uh, you know, a bit of a break. It was good. But the biggest challenge was, cause, you know, in, in the engineering program, it's uh, six courses. So it's higher than normal course load. I think most universities, you do five per term. Uh, and then also co-op program and also had this, you know, professional engineering development program. So it's just constantly working. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the friends that I had in engineering, I joke, but it's not really a joke because it was like on Friday night. They'd say, oh, it's Friday. What do you guys want to do? And you're like, I don't know. What do you, what do you want to do? Uh, well, we could either do that chemistry lab or we could do the physics lab. What do you want to work on? Huh. Okay, I guess I was going to go for a drink, but I guess we could do the <laughs> chemistry. Okay. <laughs> Can't you just bring drinks to the chemistry lab? Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of both, but it was that sort of mentality where, you know, everything was centered around the, the work. And it had to be because it was crazy. Some of those labs, I think I spent 40 hours on. That's too much. It sounds like too much. Yeah. And you eventually ended up in London. Is that because you met Chrissy? Why do you think I ended up in London? Didn't you live in London with Chrissy? No, no, no. She came to Waterloo. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, she came shit. to Laurier. Um, I, my brother went to London, so he, he went to Western. And I would go down to visit uh, him from time to time, and that's how I met Chrissy was through my brother because uh, they were friends, and then I would go to parties, and, you know, she'd be there, but we just sort of said hi and whatever. Um, but then she came to Laurier and we ran into each other on campus and she's like, uh, you're the person I've seen <laughs> <laughs> from the parties and yeah, such. Exactly. And then you guys, so you're dating for quite a while and then one of you gets, you're both working in some field and then you guys eventually leave. There's a short version and a long version. I'll give the middle one somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically, you know, Chrissy's dream was to live in Germany somehow. Her dad's side of the family is German and she had, you know, grew up with a nice connection with her aunts and uh, grandparents, I guess, that were living in Canada um, and had come here when she was younger on a Euro trip and then did, uh, 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 what do you say, an exchange in Austria, which isn't Germany, but uh, it's pretty close. They all drive German cars um, there. Yeah. I'm going to offend people here too. So. <laughs> um, no, but she always had this dream to live in Germany and specifically Berlin. She thinks it's the nicest city in the world. Uh, I don't share that opinion. Um, but she had had this dream and we had talked about it at some point, like, hey, would you ever want to live there? Uh, and then we came together on a Euro trip and stayed in Berlin for a few nights. And I said, you know what, this is an okay place to visit, but I can't live here. Um, but, you know, we talked to some people. She had some uh, German friends and some Austrian friends and people who had also come to Canada on exchange and everybody we talked to said, oh, have you heard about Leipzig? It's super trendy. Uh, and checked it out and it's like, yeah, okay, it looks kind of nice. I was looking, you know, I'm a very practical person. Uh, so I saw that there was kind of a startup tech scene as much as there can be in a 
city in Germany that's not Berlin. <laughs> uh, so I was like, okay, I could probably find a job. And then worst case, you know, you're an hour south of Berlin and you're an hour west from Dresden. So if I didn't find something in Leipzig, I could, you know, commute two or three times a week to Berlin. That's fine. I mean, there's a guy who's commuting to Leipzig and working with us now from Berlin. So that's interesting. How long is the... About an hour on a train. We're only an hour from Berlin. Yeah. Let's say an hour and a quarter, but yeah, it's not bad. Oh. So it's doable. Obviously, I, that would be a plan B or C, uh, but I ended up finding a job pretty quickly, and then we've been comfortable here. And we did, you know, justified it a little bit, thinking that we're in former uh, East Germany, GDR. Uh, it would be cheaper. It's not. <laughs> well, I guess I shouldn't say that because I haven't lived anywhere else, but it doesn't feel cheaper. Some things are, but definitely uh, not as cheap as I was expecting, but also uh, somehow nicer than I was expecting. Not as, uh, not as uh, oppressive and Soviet as somehow I thought it could be. There is some of Soviet architecture. Yeah, if you, go, if you go east in the city, you get into some places that are less comfortable. We're pretty close to the center and we're near a park. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sheltered, uh, but yeah, it worked out. So, I mean, the really short version is, you know, Leipzig was the first place we looked and it fit. So yeah, wow. <laughs> it's like when you go shopping and you try on a pair of jeans and they fit and you <laughs> buy them, but they're the first pair I gotta, you know, I gotta try a few on. <laughs> yeah. Cause then you I wonder, didn't bother. I just buy the first one. <laughs> Not thinking about whether or not the grass is greener, but you have a lot of green grass around here. Leipzig is yeah. beautiful. I can't believe how stunning the city is. In fact, I think Leipzig is the most impressive city I've been to in Germany. I've been to every major city in this country at least twice. Mm. This is my ninth or tenth trip to this country in the last 15 years. And uh, I'm totally knocked out by Leipzig. It's incredible. It's super livable. I like it. I mean, I think there's some other cities... If you're just visiting as a tourist, there's probably some other cities that either have more history or nicer architecture or, you know, more food, more culture, things sure, like this. Yeah. But for a good mix of everything, yeah. reasonable transit, you know, growing population, yeah, it's got everything you need. So you were, you, were, you were looking at Leipzig as a place to live, but partly because there is a tech startup scene. Um. Yeah, I guess I skipped over some of the motivations there. It was mostly, so I mean, I had been, I finished school, graduated class of 2012. I had been working summers at this company in Canada. Uh, I had done a bit of freelance development, whatever, some stuff on the side. But then I started, you know, full time and I was working in Guelph for, mm, yeah, six years or something. And I don't know. There were some, a couple times that I thought I'm getting kind of bored of this and started looking around, did some interviews and then would come back and, you know, talk to my supervisors and then I'd either get a raise or a, I, I made a sort of a lateral move within the company at one point. And that's when I switched from the IT side into more of a development thing. Uh, so I never just had the motivation to leave. It was really comfortable. I liked all my coworkers, I liked the work, so there was, you know, there was nothing that w was going to make me leave. And I, every time I tried, I got pulled back in. 
except there was just this thing gnawing at me like, oh, I can't work here for 20 years. That's, I, that's insane. I have, to, I have to do something different. Um, and so then it was sort of a similar thing. You know, Chrissy finished her master's and then got a few different jobs, but nothing really was clicking. Uh, and so then she was, you know, a lot of our friends were getting married, buying houses, having kids. And if you talked to me five years ago, I would have said, you know, oh yeah, I'm going to buy a house in a couple of years. Uh, and then we were, you know, talking to each other, like, what are we going to do? Are we going to live here for the rest of our lives or, or whatever? And so, uh, she had this dream. It sounded like a cool adventure. We were at sort of a turning point in our lives. And then for me, it was like, now I can leave the company and, oh, it's because I'm going to Germany. I'm not quitting to find another job. I'm quitting uh, to move to go on a life adventure or whatever. Yeah. So I think for me, it was just, I needed that kick in the ass to try something different. It's a very there's difficult a, There's thing. an expression that's like, you know, uh, comfort is the enemy of uh, innovation. I'm, I don't know, something like this. I think it's the, the, the enemy of a lot of things, including yeah. growth. Yeah. A lot of people who don't challenge themselves and just kind of live a casual day-to-day, -day, you know, nine-to-five whatever job that you don't really like, come home, watch Netflix. I don't know. You don't really experience much. <laughs> it's comfortable, right? Yeah. But it's a di difficult thing to just pack up and leave and just go to the other side of the planet. How's your German? <laughs> My Deutsch is not so good. <laughs> But better than mine, apparently. <laughs> so my one German friend laughs at me because he says I have that phrase perfect. And Entschuldigung, mein Deutsch ist nicht so gut, aber aber I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> you so you were trained in comp sci. Yeah. And if I'm gathering correctly, you did some work in development, but also in IT. Uh, the first job I got here, I was doing. I guess I was hired as a software architect, but I mean, I'm, I identify as a backend developer. Uh, you no, don't like no software architect? The, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I do, I do, we call, I guess I called it solution architecture, which is a broader focus than just the software. So there's some people that are just focusing on designing the application architecture uh, because I have, a bit of a broader perspective with the IT, the administration background. I, I'm looking not only at software, but the platform it's going to run on, setting up the network, the services that it needs to interact with, and you know, bringing that together. Uh, so the role was uh, software architecture, but I, yeah, it turned it in just into a general, uh, I don't know, dev leadership with some hands-on components. I don't know. I, it's really hard for me to talk to, you know, if you're not in the business, it's, I don't know how to dumb it down. Not to, not to say I have to dumb it down, <laughs> but I don't know how to translate it into layman's terms. I'm really Shuts bad at that. Shuts laptop lid, walks away, <laughs> <laughs> takes a beer from a I think that's a weakness. I like to say that I'm a good communicator, but I think I can only communicate with my peers. <laughs> you're an exceptional communicator. And actually, I think solution architecture is really interesting. No, that's not my term. <laughs> that's, that's not your term. That's a general. I think I'm using it wrong, actually. There's, see, there's, there's a, 
I guess if you looked in Wikipedia, you'd find they talk about enterprise architecture. So there's enterprise architects, solution architects, and then software architects or application architects, and they sort of define it as this hierarchy. The enterprise architect is making sure that a company like IBM, you know, where they have thousands of products and all these different offices, and they have to design somehow uh, a framework that the enterprise can work in, and they, you know, have to follow some patterns to make sure that things interoperate and connect with each other. And so then uh, the application architects are working on the various applications and products. And then there's this middle layer of solution architecture that has to sort of, you know, okay, you're building this, you've designed it this way. We have a, a cloud over here where we already have some systems. What if you plugged your authentication system into this thing and then, you know, we could deploy you and you could use this database and, uh, yeah. And I haven't worked at that scale. Uh, you know, I like the small to medium <laughs> size business that's comfortable. Uh, I don't like this idea of 100,000 employees. It's too many. That is a lot. Yeah. So what kind of coding did you do? What does back-end coding mean working at a German company? Uh, well, so I did C Sharp, .NET, which is Microsoft's answer to Java. Uh, we're making web services that, you know, can uh, process API calls and get some data and return some numbers. You built uh, algorithms. Um, not a lot. I mean, depends what you mean by algorithms. That's a, that's a fun topic in and of itself. Most of the algorithms that you need are designed already. They're part of the frameworks. But isn't that what an API does? No, an API is just an interface uh, that somebody can interact with. Uh, Which is filled with algorithms that perform functions yeah, in order right. to make the interface usable. I mean, so you could, you could say that I guess all the code is algorithms of some kind, but for me, there's a different meaning there. An algorithm is like a is a specific, um, I don't know, <laughs> it's a, a specific task or a specific way to perform a task, uh, usually some mathematical background. You know, for example, you talk about sorting algorithms. Here's a list of unordered items and you have to sort them. And there's, you know, a few dozen different ways you can do that. Some are more computationally expensive. Some are more uh, storage expensive. They take up more memory to process, but they're faster. But if you don't have memory, if you're you know, building embedded devices, then you have to sort this different way, which doesn't use a lot of memory, but is more uh, you know, computationally expensive. And that's, that's a lot of what computer science is about. It's actually more, uh, yeah, more math-based than you'd expect. Somebody, there was another thing I read once that computer science uh, is not a science and has nothing to do with computers. <laughs> and it's partially true because you can just design these algorithms on paper. You don't need a computer to explain how bubble sort works. <laughs> and that's a classic computer science problem. But when I'm programming, uh, when I'm making an API that has to sort something, I just call list.sort. Somebody's done that for me. Uh, you know, somebody who designed the language and the framework. So I'm not creating a sorting algorithm. I'm just using it. My algorithm is like, I get some data from the user, I validate it, 
you know, make sure that the name field has more than one character and less than two million, and then I put it in a database. And that's, you know, that's not really a, an algorithm in that computer science sense. It's, it's just a function. And this isn't what you're doing now, not computer science, not computers, <laughs> not science. No, I, never, I would say I really never did computer science. They teach you a lot of things that, I mean, so when I went into CS, I had already been doing, you know, programming myself as sort of a hobby. Uh, my dad got me involved when I was younger, we, you know, he was into computers and I learned a little bit of QBasic and some Fortran and he would get these magazines that had uh, little games that you could copy out of the back cover, just 50 lines of code and you could copy it onto your computer in basic and then, you know, play a little game like Asteroids or... So this isn't like the shareware floppy disk you got in No, it was before that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> They're not going to send you a floppy disk. You had just got a piece of paper and you had to copy it by hand and you'd often make some mistakes along the way. Uh, but then you had it and you could play it and then you could tweak it, make it harder or, you know. So, you know, the Asteroids one, you copied out and you play a little bit and then if you change this number... Uh, there's twice as many asteroids. It's crazy. You could build a, a video game off of 15 lines of code? I said 50, but yeah, it's not Oh, that. excuse me. Well, it's... It's a, a little bit more work. A one-page thing. And it, it's, you know, it wasn't really complex. You know, there's no music. <laughs> the graphics are just slashes and asterisks and number signs. So, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, but it was... The basic elements were there. And so that... You know, that was my early start, and then I uh, I got into Python and played around with that for a little bit. Um, and I was enjoying it as a hobby, and that's actually one of the reasons why I went into chemical engineering at first, because I, actually I explicitly didn't want to do computer science in university. I avoided it. Um, I knew I would probably be good at it, not to sound cocky, uh, but I didn't want to spoil the fun. I had always this idea, it's, you know, in high school English, you have to read these great books and then write fucking five essays on the meaning of life according to Shakespeare, and you never want to see that play or book again. Uh, and I assumed it would be, you know, a similar experience with computer science. And, I, you know, I talked to some uh, professional programmers and, you know, a lot of them get trapped, sort of, I wouldn't say trapped, but there's this, uh, you need people that are just sort of code monkeys churning out whatever, doing test development, sort of menial programming work. Uh, you know, it needs to get done. People have to do it, but it's not the sort of creative designing, you know, uh, Bill Gates uh, sort of work that you would think. So I didn't want to become just a code monkey. And so I figured I could just have fun doing programming as a hobby. I got involved with some, you know, Linux distros, volunteering a little bit there, maintaining some packages. Um, but then I really liked chemistry. So I figured I'd do that as a career and just keep the computing thing as a fun part of my life. 
Um, but then, yeah, after getting a little worn out, then I said, okay, whatever, I guess I could do this. And in the end, it, it worked out really well. So uh, I can't complain about how things turned out. So maybe that was the right path to take. <laughs> Who knows? If I had just immediately started in CS, I maybe wouldn't have had the same appreciation and it wouldn't have worked out the same way. Um, but I think, you know, I lost my track there. Just to say that computer science doesn't teach you how to program, I think. I, the, that's more like software engineering and that is a separate uh, uh, program at some universities. Mm -hmm. And I think that's more practically focused on how to build software systems where computer science is focusing on algorithms and math and operating system design and a lot of things that, uh, you know, I actually haven't really used <laughs> in my career, in my professional life. I actually had a funny moment because there's, um, we talk about some of these logic operations, you know, A and B equals is true. And then if they're both one, A or B is true. If they're one of them is one, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So basic logic gates and things like this. And there's, uh, you know, that comes up from time to time when you're building you're doing something in code and you have to combine some conditional statements and you say, you know, if the username is not empty and starts with a T and, you know, is less than 10 characters, then, okay, I'll create an account. Uh, and there's a, a logic uh, rule, a law, De Morgan's law, that says if you have an expression A and B, it's the same, it's equivalent to not A or not B. <laughs> what? I can draw it out for you if we had a whiteboard. What is it called? De Morgan's Law. De Morgan's Law, okay. It's just about, you know, you can, you can simplify or, or restate some statements uh, in, in the negation in that way. And I had been working uh, at this company in Guelph for... Uh, two and a half years as as a, an architect there, and we were having a discussion. I can't even remember about the topic, but we were you know doing some whiteboarding, and then I wrote out this thing, and then the other software architect said something like, "I think we can demorgan that." <laughs> it's not a verb. <laughs> I've never heard that expression before, but I immediately knew what he meant. It was just like, "I think you're right," and we we drew it and simplified it, and it's just like. You know, I've been coding for about 12 years now, and that's the first time I've ever, like, explicitly used, you know, this rule outside of an exam. Uh, and it's not that it's not a useful thing. It's just, uh, yeah, it's not common, I think, to think at that level. Most of what programming is now is just sort of gluing crap together. The people who are designing the algorithms and doing all the mathy computer science stuff, uh, they're the ones designing languages and, and machine learning algorithms and all that uh, other stuff, which is going to become the building blocks for what I am going to work on next, I guess. I'm sort of, I think I'm just uh, kind of an average guy in this field. If you talk to some of the guys, the brilliant guys that are going to work at Google and stuff, they're probably 
using more of these fundamental things, redesigning algorithms and more demogorgons, doing compression stuff to optimize, just shave off bits on a message that's going to save Google, you know, a hundred million dollars a year because they are at that scale. Uh, and, uh, you know, pe people in the industry, uh, complain a lot about the coding interview when you're trying to hire a programmer, uh, Nobody knows how to do this yet. Not even Microsoft and Google and uh, Amazon. They, everybody's just sort of trying shit to see what works. Um, but what happens is there's a practice of, you know, what they say, whiteboard interview questions, where you ask somebody to, you know, write out a merge sort algorithm on a board. And... People complain about this because it's like, yes, it's something you study in computer science, but it's so academic. You never, ever use that knowledge, really. I mean, it's, it's interesting to know, and, okay, why sort algorithms are, you know, have log n time complexity or whatever. Uh, but when you're actually coding, you just say list sort. And there's a very few cases in, you know, extremely... Uh, niche sort of fields where it matters that you know exactly what your sorting algorithm is doing and you have to optimize it for a specific use case. For 99% of people, uh, you just care that the list is sorted and you don't care how it gets there. So... Uh, that um, sounds like a familiar problem for a lot of people. <laughs> where you're asked questions and the answers you provide you are things that you know can't actually be applied. Well, yeah, really I guess I haven't interviewed too much outside of... <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what it's like in other industries, but it's something that uh, the computer guys complain about a lot. And I have been on the other side giving interviews, you know, how to suss out a good developer without having them develop something for a month. It's really hard. It's like finding out if somebody's a good writer and asking them, can you, you know, write, find all the anagrams in this sentence? Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> what you're giving the, the people who are not familiar with this industry some insight into, and for myself as well, is the culture of the industry mm. and how priorities are set when it comes to approaching a new problem which is why I was kind of excited by this quote-unquote solution architecture. It's interesting to think about technology and the, the coding and the programming that goes on behind it as um, something like is a utility, a very practical utility for fixing problems that don't just exist, but you know are going to exist, and they just always have to be dealt with. So you have problems, and then you need solutions. You hire people to, to come up with them. Mm. Seems like there will always be a need for coding and programming, which is why we see so many people not really want to get into the social sciences these days and get into computer sciences. But it, it does raise a big question for you, and it's something that's, that I've been really confused about since day one, and it's where the ethics fit in. This is like, I know you're looking at me like, well, obviously you're going to ask about that. Yeah, like, I was just waiting to just get, just get to this you're, point. You're the privacy guy, I prepared of course. some ammunition, so <laughs> I'm joking. How, no, it'd be nice to, to, to see that ammunition, actually, because I, I think I'm lacking some of it. How often do questions of ethics, and there, we're having a, quite a big conversation with 
computer engineers as social scientists right now about when ethics should be a priority, you know, at the whiteboard stage or at the sit down coding, the beginning of coding and beginning of software architectures at the variable definition stage of one of those things. How often does ethics come up? And do you think it should be coming up in different places that it's not? I mean, it depends. I think it really depends on what you're building. The company I was working at before was making uh, software that was being used in the operating room. It was uh, a program that would help guide surgeons through routine surgeries and prompt them throughout, uh, you know, to remember to do this or this step and then... Uh, they could record the times and things like this. And so there were some conversations at, at times where everybody understood the importance of what we were doing. You know, if we have a critical failure, it hopefully isn't killing somebody outright. You know, we're not controlling the surgical robot or the radiation machine, but it could mislead a surgeon and, you know, hurt someone's outcome. So um, that was sort of ever present in requirements discussions about the whole purpose of that software was to improve patient outcomes and, you know, collect some data on the side. But uh, it, it was present, but not sort of a focus, I guess you would say. And I think in that context, it should have been sort of uh, discussed at the requirements phase. Very early on, just there's an idea and then we talk about what it's what this idea is going to turn into, the product, what we're going to build, and that's when the ethics discussion really should happen. What often happens is it's after you've ended up building something and you're using it for a little bit and then someone comes along and says, hey, by the way, did you know that you have everybody's blood type and their address and birthday in this database? Should we have that? <laughs> and you're like... Oh, I guess we don't really need it, but, you know, it might be useful. Uh, and then that's a, a stickier situation. And I think it, it really does revolve around data collection recently because that's been the big focus. And we talked about that the other day where I said this whole GDPR uh, scare, whatever you want to call it, that happened the last couple of years really changed the conversation, at least in conversations that I was part of where people were, you know, talking about it uh, explicitly instead of implicitly. I mean, there had been conversations before like, yeah, we should be careful with this data or we don't need that or whatever, but it was never so uh, focused and uh, uh, at the top of everybody's mind for about that year around just, you know, the year before and shortly after GDPR because everyone was just panicking because they were looking and at all the data they had and like, holy shit, <laughs> we don't need all of this and there is no way to delete it. That's the crazy thing because GDPR was just saying, you know, you have to tell people that you're going to collect their data and if they say they don't want you to, you have to delete it. And that sounds simple to you probably, but that was a terrifying requirement for some uh, companies because of how the data was linked and implementing a delete operation is not trivial <laughs> if you've, you know, keyed all your data on customer first name, then what do you do? You can't just delete the customer record because it would destroy your whole database. So then you have to re-architect your whole database and it takes months and months of effort. 
Isn't that kind of a reflection of the, a design of a system that is meant to serve a specific purpose that is not amenable to needed change when society asks for it? I mean, if it was de designed from a more ethical perspective, couldn't the whole architecture yeah. be a little bit more socially responsible? It could be, and it should be, and has nothing to do with ethics. It's just better software architecture. Oh, I think it has everything it, to do with ethics. No, it supports ethics, but so I would say you shouldn't key your whole database on first name <laughs> as a general principle. Hey, I, and I can then when to, yeah. somebody says, yeah. comes along and says, we need to delete this customer, then you just say, okay, and you're done. The fact that it happens not only, you know, is a ethical privacy concern, but it's just sloppy uh, software engineering. And that's, that's what bothers me more. <laughs> uh, hey, it bothers me too when students only put their first name on exams. <laughs> that's a disaster. Yeah, exactly. You can't submit your grades when you have one field missing out of 40, right. right? And so why, you think that people here, that, you know, it's not like the first exam they've ever written probably, but Absolutely still, not. Yeah, but they're nervous, they happens. make mistakes, they're humans, they're not... So I don't know how to explain it for my guys when they, you know, come with a schema design and it's just like, there's no key on this table. And that's like forgetting to sign your name on a test. It's the same sort of fundamental, what are you doing? Yeah. And they're not under pressure. I mean, sometimes they are, but they're not writing an exam. I'm not grading them every day. Yeah. Uh, but it's easy to see how, you know, the problem is that you make one mistake and one sloppy decision and one quick thing, we'll fix it later. And they all sort of build on each other and you end up into these tightly woven balls of crap that are impossible to detangle. And that's, you know, the constant fight in uh, software architecture and just software engineering is writing something that's extensible, well-designed, where you, you know, it can adapt easily to change, um, whether or not those changes serve privacy laws or ethical concerns or just help you, you know, develop a new feature or change the background color. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes that's hard-coded, you know, and, oh, I should have made that configurable. Too bad. Yeah, I don't know. The problem is all these things take time. Software develops so quickly uh, and there's, you know, the, the barrier to entry is zero. Anybody with a computer can see your idea and start copying it, re-implementing it. So you have to be quick. There's fierce competition for funding for startups. Uh, and if the investors don't see results, they can just pull the plug and, you know, it's very teetery sometimes. So uh, you understand why there's this pressure to just build something quick, get it out the door. The team's gone now. We need a new team to continue developing it. They didn't talk to the first team that developed it. So they do their things their own way. So it gets all jumbled up. And it's not until you, you know, have been running for five years and you have a million customers, then you kind of like, okay, this is bigger than we thought it was going to be, and we were trying to design a calendar system, but we ended up designing a car rental program. What the hell? Okay, we have to go change all these things, and then that's where you realize, oh, we were collecting SSNs because it was going to do this, but now it's not doing that. But, you know, we, we can't remove that feature without having to rebuild the whole system. It's crazy. It's, it's chaotic. I think there's very few programs that have a linear 
progression because it's not like, you know, people talk about making software like there's a lot of construction analogies. And I mean, I'm an architect, so it's hard to even get past that one. I say that and it's like, yeah, it's like designing a building, <laughs> but it's not. You don't, uh, you don't design the software first on a blueprint and then somebody goes and builds it and follows that blueprint. It's not like that. The, the people who are writing the code are the ones sort of discovering it and experimenting and trying different things and, and figuring things out as they go. Um, and it's not usually until you've built something and you take a step back and you say, oh, okay, that's, that sort of works. It kind of looks like what, we, you know, what you were describing. Um, so I think it's yeah. such a young industry and, you know, the, everyone's trying to discover their own sort of process and, you know, it's unregulated and, uh, like I said, anybody can do it. So anybody does do it. Some people who probably shouldn't be doing it, but whatever, because you can make a lot of money. Have you detected uh, any shifts in attitudes and culture about, uh, building software systems within the realities and the context of what's being asked and what's required to include more ethical considerations. Another way of asking the question is, does privacy by design work? I think it's, it's a challenge because I think if you talk to the technical guys, you'd probably get a good response. A lot of people want to be part of that discussion and want to uh, build better systems that are, you know, socially responsible and things like this. But the, the environment as a whole, like I said, this fierce competition, you have, you know, customers that don't know what they want. They just want something. I heard this internet thing is cool. Uh, and then you have to build it as fast as possible for as cheaply as possible. Uh, with as few resources as possible. And then halfway through when you're building it, the requirements have changed. So it's really hard to make time, <laughs> even for you know rigorous design and testing, let alone uh, keeping privacy and ethics and uh, these sort of secondary concerns, honestly, at a, giving them the time of day. And I don't think it's that people are trying to ignore them it's just, uh, it's not paying the bills, you know, nobody's choosing, like, it's clear that that's the thing I think that I was hinting on. One of the first things I said, what I don't get is, you know, people know that Google and Facebook, you know, and these companies don't care at all about your privacy. It's clear as day and they've been caught red handed, but people are still using it. So it's clear that there's not really a benefit, you know, if you can be a Facebook and just shit all over everybody's privacy constantly, repeatedly, again and again, and there's no consequences, and you still are making billions of dollars and still gaining customers. Why is somebody who's, you know, struggling to get an extra million dollar round of funding going to spend any money unless their product is, you know, a privacy security system? <laughs> what does privacy mean to you? And what is a meaningful consequence to you? Huh. Just don't give my data away. That's, that's where I'd like to start. There's too many systems that are solely built on 
you know, selling your data to third parties, uh, either directly or indirectly. Um, and I'm kind of sick of that. I would be happy, and I've started to, uh, you know, pay for things that you can get for free. For example, I pay for my own email system now. Uh, there's a German company actually called uh, Tutanota. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but they're trying to build a, you know, a, a, yeah, nice private encrypted email system that's reasonably priced, similar to the, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of that one, Proton Mail. You know yeah, Proton, they're? I know Proton. So they're trying to do something similar to what Proton Mail did, but Proton, you know, got some, uh, I think, bad press early on with, oh, they were using it for terrorism. I don't know. Oh, this is British discourse crap. Yeah, yeah Encryption yeah. enables terrorism bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. We're kind of talking about privacy in the context of not giving my data away. Because when I when I look at my smartphone and from the research that I've been doing, I don't really see this as a communication device at all. It's a surveillance it's, device. It's a, it's a surveillance device, but it's also a measuring device. Before communication, before surveillance, it has to measure. And I know that there's a lot of different things inside of this device that do measuring all the time, and that's what data is. It's a measurement of something. At least that's the way I try to understand it as a social scientist. So if it's measuring all the time and it's collecting data discreetly, like movements in a gyroscope and uh, move, you know accelerometer velocity, you know whatever detection stuff, microphone listening, screen touch events, all of that data is created in a context because whereby this thing is is literally built to do it all the time. As soon as it's turned on, it's it's making measurements of the world around me. But that's not necessarily me doing that. I'm not. It should cost five times as much as it does. They sell those things at a loss, I think, to enable them to collect the data. That's why Google's giving Android away for but free. But it's not my data, then. It's their measuring device. Yeah. They're Which doing the measuring of me you, and my interaction with you and how I use the internet. you're into it. The problem is it's just not clear. It's underhanded. But if I said, you know, here, carry this device around for you all the time so I can measure everything you're doing... Uh, and I'll give you ten bucks a month. This you, is a this is a language game. This is a rhetoric game, and it's really, really deceiving. And I think this kind of gives us some critical insight into this privacy paradox thing that we've been sort of implicitly talking about. Because mm -hmm. I didn't opt into shit. They you, give me this did. thing when you turned it on. I bet you there was a long yeah yeah within the framework of the rhetoric and the language that nobody reads you because said, I agree. They're you not the box. You designed. It twice. They're not designed <laughs> to be easy. They're they're written in legalese or written in politicalese, which is a political device. It deflects interest. It deflects curiosity, and it's premised upon a point of interaction where you simply say in a binary response, yes or no, without actually having a dialogue maybe. about the language, maybe, <laughs> a dialogue with the people who build these things, right? Yeah. And it's also not explicit inside of those agreements about how much data is being created by which devices for what purposes, by which shareholders, by which people that were interested in using that same thing or that kind of data. There's no discussion in there about inference making. There's no uh, discussion in there about how and whether that data is going to be used to build new assumptions about who you're going to become as a security risk to 
some national interest or as a consumer of some product that hasn't been made yet. These are all fundamentally important social things that need to be discussed. So again, my point is that I don't actually agree with the idea that privacy should be premised upon my data. I think it's, this is corporate data. This is corporate recording of my life, but it's not my data. It's their data. And by convincing the user that it is theirs without actually them knowing the details of any of it yeah. is one of the greatest manipulations of modern technology. Right. But I think it's, um, I think it's important to say first, you know, I'm not a smartphone expert and I did do some BlackBerry app development, <laughs> a little bit of Android app development, but that was back in the, uh, I guess it was Eclair 2.1 days. It was much different back then. Just to say that the smartphone has sort of developed into this surveillance tool. And I don't, yeah, uh, I don't deny that. I think that's clear and I think more people should see that. I'm going to keep using mine though. It's super convenient. Oh, I'm going to keep using mine. I have a Huawei device. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to delete that part, I think. What I can talk about is, you know, a, a a more personal example for what I do you know, we're we're building software systems, whether a website or some program, and it starts just, I want some analytical data. I want to know how my users are using the system mm-hmm. because what happens is UIs are hard to design. User experience is tricky. A lot of the times you don't start with a user experience expert on staff. You just have a couple developers, oh yeah, I know some HTML and I built a website once. Uh, And then as it grows and people start using it, you find they use it in different ways than you thought. You find that they can't find the button that you made flashing red. For some reason, they keep calling and they say they don't know how to, you know, create a new foobar, but there's a button that says new foobar on the screen. Why aren't they clicking it? Uh, And it starts with that sort of question. The product comes and says, uh, the customer says, you know, the new version's really cool. They like that the colors are different, uh, but they're still struggling to download that report. Well, we added a download report button. Why can't they see it? And because it's easy, I mean, it's hard to go talk to the customer. That's tricky. Uh, it, what is easy to do is just put some analytics code in the system that records button clicks and mouse movements, and then I can see oh, they're not clicking the button because they're using a monitor that's smaller than my developer's crazy 34-inch 4K monitor. They're just using <laughs> their you know shitty 720p thing, and the button is below the fold of the screen. So they have to scroll down to see it. So oh, what if we made it float always here and, or put it in the top corner instead of the bottom corner? Ah, okay, and we've solved this usability problem. But now we're recording all the mouse movements in every single button click. And you don't take that out once you put it in, then it becomes a feature. Then you can even give the customer reports of how people are using the system. I can give you an analytics report about how your users within your company are interacting with the software that we've sold to you. And then you can find out your you know, most popular pages and uh, your, your orphaned pages. You have some you know, features that nobody's using. Uh, maybe you don't want to keep paying for them. Usually it's the other way around, though. We'll show you where you could pay us more for features that people clearly want. Um, 
so it's easy for me to see from that perspective how these systems, uh, you know, they get introduced for a very simple, straightforward, obvious reason, and they evolve from there. Nobody's going to argue in a meeting from an ethical standpoint when you say, hey, can we put some analytics on this site so that product knows how they're using the system? Every developer's going to be like, yeah. You want to use Google Analytics or something else? Yeah, let's use the Google one. I've used that before. Hopefully and it's not Google Analytics. And it's there. That shit's terrifying to me. It's terrifying because uh, a lot of the data ends up finding new life and new application in completely unrelated products and markets, and the user has no idea. Yeah, that's and, the scary part. But yeah. it's, it's free or cheap, and it works well. Right. And, and that's and, the genius of Google's whole system. And yeah, and so this is where you and I have a, like a, a ton of agreement and common understanding. I was here last summer and we were hanging out together in Hamburg. And that was some, that during that time, it was some of the most interesting and compelling conversations I've ever had with somebody. We're in completely different industries. You know, I don't live the code. I don't do it. I don't work with the systems from the inside out. You do. And so we still have this like common perspective, I think, between the two of us about ethics and knowledge and awareness and if you know perhaps people see what's happening to the data you know that they're showing examples like the most rudimentary visualizations where you can take code from the back of a magazine and plug it in and get some sort of representation that's interactive because it allows you to build a relationship mm. with the stuff that's being entered in on the keyboard if that sort of thing amounted to re uh, inferences that are being made about you or what advertisers are really interested in certain claims about who you are that you didn't even know were happening. Mm -hmm. If there was a way for people to get insight into those pathways, into those systems and those conversations, I think it's going to radically upset how societies think about whether or not it is their data on their device. I think it's quaint and cute to say that, oh, your privacy no. is about respecting your data, but that you have no idea what data is actually meaningful. I've lost some faith in humanity <laughs> after <laughs> the whole Cambridge Analytica thing when it's like, I thought for sure that was the beginning of the end for Facebook. And it looked dicey for like two minutes and then everybody moved on. I thought, I thought for sure it's like, finally, <laughs> you know, a crazy scandal. You know, there'd just been tiny scandals. There'd been whiffs that this was being abused. And then suddenly to have something like this come and be in the, you know, news circuit for weeks at a time, getting grilled in front of Congress, all this stuff. And then we just moved on <laughs> and nothing changed. And at that point, I was just like, oh, if that, you know, didn't convince half the people to move off of that platform. I literally don't know what could, you know, they could be sending, they'd send your naked photos to your mom and you'd be like, ah, oh, that's damn, you know, I can't believe they did that again. <laughs> what was the, the one thing that you were really hoping was going to come out of Cambridge Analytica that you didn't, you didn't see? Uh, I think I was just hoping for a mass exodus for people to start moving away from Facebook. I think they've been, you know, I don't want to turn this in just to an anti-Facebook rant, but... Uh, I am fine with that. No. <laughs> uh, 
you know, I got off of Facebook. I was on it for about two years in university, and then I got off of it because I didn't think it was productive. And I, you know, I missed out on some, uh, some, you know, benefits. It's harder to socialize with some people, but if there was any anything serious, like a party, I still got an invitation somehow, even though I wasn't in the Facebook group. <laughs> if someone really wanted there, me there, they would call me. <laughs> Or send me a text message. And so that was a lot of, when I told people that, a lot of them like, don't you, you know, you don't get invited to parties. You're not part of these groups. Uh, I'm like, no, I still get invited. And the ones that I don't get invited to, it's like, I don't care that I'm not on a Facebook blast to 200 people to, you know, come party with some guy I met once. I don't care that I'm not keeping in touch with somebody I knew from when I was eight. <laughs> it's not, uh, hey, how's your life? It's been four years since I last talked to you. Still good? Oh, you're married now. Good. All right. I'll talk to you again in four years. That's, I'm, not, I'm not missing that. But what they've done is created... Uh, smarter people than I have called it a walled garden, you know? To, they, they, they've built an environment, an ecosystem that you have to participate in. I put a website up. Anybody can link to it. It's available and it's sort of the commons. But... If somebody posts a Facebook post, somehow I still get a link to it on Google and I click it and instead of seeing the post, I see the first sentence and then a pop-up that says, you know, sign up for Facebook now. And that's sad. It's really, it's breaking the internet. It's building these little uh, gated communities that uh, only certain people are allowed to enter. Um, and I think I think that's horrible and I don't support it. And it was funny because that was exactly what AOL was trying to do, if you remember. Uh, and people weren't as sort of uh, tech savvy back then. So you could sort of excuse it. The web wasn't understood what it was going to be or even what it was. And it wasn't understood the sort of scale that it was going to have. But I don't know if you remember when there used to be advertisements and you would see you know, visit us online at www.dominoes.com or AOL keyword Domino's One. You know what I'm talking about? The AOL keyword was the walled garden. You couldn't get into that other space unless you were also an AOL member. And that uh, thankfully wow. died. That thankfully did not go, except, <laughs> except there is still a surprising number of people who only have AOL as their internet access. Come on. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Shipping free CDs around to everybody. <laughs> that still turn, happens? Turns out, no, they don't do that anymore because nobody has a CD player anymore. But the people who got those thumb, CDs... Thumb, thumb drives? Uh, and have only ever owned one computer uh, and are still on 56K, uh, they're still using it. Just, you know, whatever. People still use 56K? Yeah. And where? In like, rural, I don't know. Wow, that's Middle, middle America. Do they still have dial-up? Is I that guess. still a thing? I, I, haven't, I haven't witnessed it for myself, but I've seen uh, the statistics. But it's funny because, I mean, uh, you know, my dad passed uh, four years ago now. Um, maybe five. Anyway, he had, a, he had a website for a long time. I think, you know, he, he set it up in the 90s uh, and he used a small local ISP that also did some web hosting uh, in and around Kitchener-Waterloo. And 
I think he was paying the same price <laughs> for since 1991 uh, to have like 100 megabytes of web space and he was paying $30 a month. Uh, and that included email and things like this. And when he passed, I wanted to keep hosting it. So I put it on Amazon and now I pay like four cents a month. <laughs> but it's it's crazy because if you don't, it, you know, it changes so fast and it's so accessible now. And uh, if you don't keep up with it, yeah. you're in trouble. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the biggest challenges when it comes to talking about how data and privacy relate internet of things, growing databases, faster processing. Yeah. It's impossibly difficult for not just people, but academics to understand what the hell is going on. I mean, it's literally why I'm in it's Germany right difficult now. It's so hard. people in the industry to understand what's going on. I'm trying very hard to keep up to date and I'm now, uh, I'm now, you know, the old guard. I, I don't know anything about the machine learning and AI stuff. Like, I mean, I know about it, but I, I'm not an expert in it. And so there was a brief period where I knew everything I needed to know about the, the modern technologies at the time. And I guess I peaked. <laughs> and now everything that's new is, uh, yeah, that's for the next generation. <laughs> You've learned and I'm you only learn. 32, no, 31, so. Oh, my goodness. There's a, a, a thesis something of an argument in the social sciences amongst privacy scholars right now. They're trying to get people to think differently about what privacy means from a definitional standpoint. So I'm going to share it with you. What if we were to start defining privacy as the space where someone can grow that cannot be affected by any th anybody outside of them? Make your own thoughts and come to your own conclusions without it being fettered or manipulated or accessed by people who want to collect the data from you doing that thing in that space. Aren't you just saying that, that privacy is free speech? It feels eerily similar. No, there's a lot more going on. Free speech is, I mean, definitionally is like being able to talk without being interrupted. But I mean more intimately, like being able to sit on my own terms in my, my office or excuse me, sorry for that, um, in my house to just think about the world mm. and to be in control of that context. Why I think this is important in the context of data and surveillance is that when you have listening devices around you all the time and measurement recording devices that are literally discreetly collecting data, you are literally, quite literally, having your ability to think and reflect upon the world undermined. Because somebody's recording that. They might be not be listening to your thoughts, but they're listening as you, you collect, as it collects keystrokes. Mm -hmm. They're listening as you're looking up uh, uh, whatever news headlines on Google. Have you found yourself ever hesitating to Google something? Because is there ever a point where you're, you're about to type it in and then you're like, no. <laughs> All the time. I don't think most people. I think that's the first place to get. It's like, you know, it's okay to use Google to, you know, who won the game last night? How do I make chicken Kiev? Shit <laughs> like this. But when you, you know, asking, uh, why does it hurt when I pee and who should I vote for? Uh, there needs to be a completely separate system for that.
And people don't make that distinction, you know? It's like the one-stop shop. Uh, and I think, I mean, that that's a nice definition in how it sounds, and I can sort of, I feel where it's coming from, but it doesn't, to me, feel practical enough. It ha there has to be something tangible, because it can't just, and I think that's the problem, because privacy means it's really hard to talk about and especially if you want it to make its way into that requirements discussion with the engineers, then it needs to have some real-world meaning that everybody sure. agrees on. And, uh, and data is one way to, you know, that's easy. And that's actually, you know, that's a big thing in a lot of the uh, existing frameworks. You know, we talk about PII, personally identifiable information, addresses and phone numbers and, you know, maiden names and things like this and that's you know that's easy that's concrete i can say hey is there any pii in the system yeah only level two okay that's fine uh, you know but when we start to say are we building a free space for people who you know that where they can grow and it's like crickets <laughs> and i'd love to get to that point but uh i think you know just tying into my last rant it's like if people aren't aware that, you know, that thing with Facebook was actually a serious thing and they're not aware that there's a difference between Googling a recipe and Googling, you know, something about a political candidate. Uh, we need to start at something a little bit more fundamental. And maybe, you know, you're taking a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach. I don't know what that is. You're, you're trying to start over here and working your way and I think I'm Probably coming from the other Moving direction. Moving from left to right, right to left, forward, backwards, whatever. Yeah. Three dimensions. <laughs> For those that can't see what we're doing with our hands right now. It's working in three dimensions. The language is really important. I entirely agree you with you. You've got to play that quote from the Simpsons episode where, where the, uh, I think it's a Halloween episode where the aliens impersonate Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. My fellow Americans, as a young boy, I dreamed of being a baseball but tonight I say we must move forward, not backward, upward, not forward, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch on Twitter at WTNCast. And until next time, keep listening to the noise.